Hey, movie fans. It's us at Real Old Reels, Robin and Lisa. So we're on week three. This is really exciting. I hope everyone got a chance to watch You Can't Take It With You. What did we watch this week? This week was actually my favorite so far. It was Forbidden Planet. It was definitely one of my favorites as well. I remember it being scary and exciting watching it as a kid. So we watched it quite a few times, I think. Right. I mean, as a kid, it's it's really fun because there's a little bit of animation. It's very colorful. It's otherworldly. It just opens up your imagination to all these different kind of things. And it actually inspired a lot of different films and TV shows afterwards. But I didn't realize that it wasn't a huge hit when it was first made. For those who haven't seen it, let's talk about what Forbidden Planet is all about. First of all, if you see the movie poster when you're looking it up, it looks like the hokiest B-movie ever. The poster has a giant robot on it carrying this a fainted blonde girl that doesn't actually, we don't actually meet someone like that in the movie. Uh, It doesn't look like a very good movie, but it's actually pretty great. Right, right. I mean, that that scene never even happens in the movie. (laughs) So Lisa, why don't you tell us about what happens in this movie? Why should we watch it? Okay. Um, so I did a little bit of a deep dive on this movie because when I was researching it, it said that some of the, that it's an adaptation of the Tempest, um, Shakespeare's play, the Tempest, which if you're unfamiliar with that story, it's somewhat close to the story of the little mermaid, which we were probably all familiar with. Um, It's a story about a father who's egotistical, powerful, intelligent, and somewhat mysterious or mystical. In The Tempest, Prospero is the father, and he's a wizard. But in Forbidden Planet, the father's name is Morbius, and he's the only one who can use the alien intelligence machine that's on this mysterious planet that the main characters visit the father and the daughter are usually an isolated people visited by outsiders somehow. Right. Right. Yeah. Like in the little mermaid, I guess they have their own, own little town mermaid town and stuff, but it's mostly about Triton and Ariel and the little mermaid. And then the humans kind of enter the picture. So in the Tempest, It's one of the few Shakespeare plays that doesn't fit easily into tragedy or comedy. And it's usually classified as a romance, which this movie is as well. Uh, The daughter in this classic falls in love with the first person she sees, just like Ariel. And in this movie, Altera is the daughter and she falls in love with the commander of the spaceship the story ends up being about the father's struggle to let go of his daughter. And ultimately he denounces and abandons his powers or his magic. What have you? And the daughter always plays a key role in the Tempest. The daughter's name is Miranda. So this is kind of where I go on my, my deep dive (laughs) a little bit. So I looked up the name Miranda and it means to admire that's in Shakespeare's Tempest. That's the daughter in Shakespeare's Tempest. So the father admired his daughter and is a bit narcissistic about it. He loves and admires her. 
He openly thinks she is naive, though, and ignorant and is completely dependent on her for his like ego stroking, I guess, which is the same for Forbidden Planet. Altera is the daughter and she admires her father and he admires her as well. But she she kind of gives him power through just her admiration of him. So like I said, Miranda means to admire. And then Altera is the name of the daughter in the Forbidden Planet. And that is also the name of the planet where they live. It's Arabic for bird, but it's also the feminine form of Altair, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Aquila. So follow me here. <laughs> um, this constellation is... It's supposed to be the eagle that carries Zeus or Jupiter's thunderbolts, which is the source of Zeus's power. So Altera, the planet and the daughter, give Morbius, the father figure in Forbidden Planet, his power or is a carrier for the for his power. To sum up what you're saying, basically, it's not really a matter of love between the father and the daughter. It's more about power. The father wants to control his daughter, wants to feel like he's in charge of a whole world because in Forbidden Planet, he it, they're the only people on this world and he is in charge. And for Little Mermaid, obviously he's the king. In The Tempest, he is in charge of this entire island and he's conquered all the inhabitants of the island. They have become enslaved to him. So he loves his daughter, but it's like a bit of a twisted relationship. Yeah, it's like narcissistic parents who kind of see their children as trophies more than actual entities other than themselves. <laughs> and um, a side note is that Morbius's name also means sickness or mental illness, which is really fitting since... A little on the nose. In the, yeah, yeah. Since the monster, um, the monster character ends up being himself, um, his his inner id right there is a strong freudian overtone to this movie and that is the idea of subconscious subconsciously we have desires and motivations that are not completely pure even though when we are conscious we we want we mean well we want good things but subconsciously we may want to do others harm if we don't entirely like them or if we are suspicious of them this sounds like a really heavy movie, but it's not really, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, no, it's pretty, I don't know, it's pretty silly. Yeah. It's tense. It, it's a very well done story. I think all these connections are very cool and it just adds to how well thought out the story is. And it's just kind of funny. This movie is, was even made because it has a level of depth to it that you would attribute to someone who's really into sci-fi, someone who loves science fiction and Greek mythology and Shakespeare, someone who really nerds out on this stuff. But actually, the guy that made this movie, he works for MGM, which is not known for doing any sci-fi of any kind. It's known for doing Wizard of Oz. And this particular director, Fred Wilcox, he did... Secret Garden, and he did Lassie Comes Home, <laughs> and he did a bunch of <laughs> other very light movies. This was his second to last film that he worked on, and 
MGM wasn't even going to approve it because we, you know, they didn't do sci-fi films. They didn't have the the setting or the um, the team to do it. And probably didn't know if they had the audience for it either. Right, right. It wasn't their jam. But Fred Wilcox decided he really wanted to do it for whatever reason. I don't really, I wasn't able to find out what his motivations were exactly. But he got it made simply because the monster in this movie is invisible. And so that was the only reason MGM was like, okay, as long as it's invisible. This should be easy enough. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And don't let that dissuade you from watching it either that every uh, there's so much in this movie that is unseen or untold and is left up to your imagination. We're making this sound like a really cerebral, hard to access film, but it's just plain great. Even as kids, I remember loving it. And my kids, even though the special effects are pretty primitive compared to what we're used to today and the backdrops are all artistically done I think and probably painted by um either people who worked at MGM or even some Disney animators worked on the film as well it's 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 admittedly a little cheesy but my kids were on the edge of their seats watching this for the first time they got really tense in the in the climactic scene toward the end yeah, as a kid, I remember it being a really fun film, but the rewatching it now, the sound effects kind of made me nervous this time around. And I don't remember feeling nervous watching it as a child. Right. It is very eerie. The sound effects were completely new. This film was the first film to have a completely electronic created soundtrack. The composers, BB and Louis or Louis Barron, they made this bubbly, drippy sound with someone sound sounding like a a distant person vacuuming furiously. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of difficult to describe sounds to it, but what they basically did was they had an analog sound system where they were able to physically alter the pitch and start and stop it, make odd little twists in the in the sound and they did it all by hand and it was the first time anyone had had done that and it's the first thing you'll probably notice when you watch the film yeah i wonder if that had anything to do with inspiring the the people that were working on star wars because i just found out that lightsabers was an act is actually just a microphone being passed by a projector it's just like somebody waving a microphone at a projector and like it's the worrying sound. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I I know that Star Wars, George Lucas was heavily influenced by the film. And you might even see a few different things that look a little bit familiar. Like there is scrolling text in the beginning and set designs are supposed to have been influenced or the, the Death Star was supposed to have been influenced by the set designs. The sound effects guy, uh, Ben Burt, on Star Wars also was influenced by it. I don't know if the blasters were were supposed to mimic the ones on Forbidden Planet, but they do have blasters and they go pew pew. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, this distant planet, these this uh, this ship full of um, like a doctors and and military 
people on an expedition. They're trying to recover or find out what happens to this exploration by a group of people on this planet. And they find just Dr. Morbius and his daughter, and they want to know what happened to everybody else. And they want to try to get them back on earth. But Dr. Morbius, like the Tempest, doesn't want anyone to boss him around. Yeah, I think part of it is also he doesn't want anyone to know the technology that he has because he does he doesn't think that humankind is ready for it because he's so much above everyone else that he is the only one that can handle it. Yeah, he definitely has his ego attached to what he's discovered and the power he has. But also his exploration team that he came with, they all one by one were knocked off including his wife he doesn't know what happened to them. In fact, he says that the same thing happened to the civilization that were uh, that inhabited that planet before they came. So he seems pretty comfortable staying there with his daughter because they seem to be fine. But he says, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. It's interesting that you say it's a lot like the Little Mermaid or the Tempest is a little bit like the Little Mermaid because in the Tempest, there's a character named Ariel who is an assistant, someone who helps out Prospero in the Tempest. The helper in Forbidden Planet is named Robbie. Do you want to tell us about yeah. Robbie? Yes. <laughs> um, so Robbie is kind of a first of his kind. I guess I shouldn't even say he because he <laughs> is a it's a robot. Before robots in other movies were just kind of like and can things that they didn't really talk or have personality often they were people in metallic suits and slacks <laughs> right yeah and this one actually had a person inside it as well but it had like worrying things on the top and um and the person who was it it reached seven feet tall but the person inside had to be really short because the top of the of the robot was clear so you could see all the gears whirring and everything. So the, the people that were operating it had to be like almost close to five feet, but it was one of the most expensive props that was ever built at $125,000, which equals $1.5 million today. It was 7% of the entire budget of the movie just for this robot. This robot um, had some spinoffs. He has some cameos like in the Adams Family and Colombo TV shows. He starred in The Invisible Boy, which is a, is a 1954 film. Um, he also became a toy. So ultimately, he, he kind of made up for the cost of his own production. Robbie even knows a variety of foreign languages, which inspired the, the Star Wars C-3PO character. Yeah, he's supposed to um, have inspired C-3PO because he's basically does whatever he is told and is trying to be very agreeable and helpful. In the movie, uh, kind of a funny part of it is that he he can replicate any kind of food, which the cook on the spaceship takes advantage of to get several bottles of bourbon. Can I be of service, sir? Look, never mind the sir, mister, but... I'm a stranger in this so-called planet. I was just wondering if, well, if you could tell me where I could, uh, I could get a hold of some of the real stuff. Real stuff? Uh, just for cooking purposes, you understand. I take a big pride in my duties. 
Pardon me, sir. Stuff. Um, this directly influenced the the food replication in the Star Trek series. Um, and okay, I have to mention this because I found it so funny. But Robbie, so he's a costume. The first person who operated it was this stuntman, uh, Frankie Darrow. And he was fired really early on in production because in an early scene in the movie, he had consumed a five martini lunch before shooting a scene and (laughs) was completely drunk. And so they fired him and then he was replaced by another Frankie, a Frankie Carpenter. But Robbie the robot is not a credited role in the movie. He is just Robbie the robot. Oh, he's got he's got his own credit, but not any of the humans playing him. Interesting. Right. Robbie is said to be the most expensive single prop ever created for a film, even today, I think adjusted for inflation, uh, which is actually very surprising because he's he looks like a cool robot. But there have been a lot of really big and expensive things before. So pretty big deal. <laughs> He is basically the biggest special effect of that film. And, and I think it did get uh, Fred Wilcox in trouble because of how much he spent on that. He was It was a bit on thin ice. But there's actually a few special effects in there that are still pretty cool, even though they're, they're simple by today's standards. The footprints in the sand and the, and the steps leading up to the spaceship being weighed mm. down by an invisible source. Yeah, I I totally wondered, how are they doing that for the time? And there is one part where they use the Disney animators to out just just do a outline of the invisible monster. And you get a vague idea of what the monster looks like. What is it, Randall? Sir, radar just picked up something. Where are we? At the head of the Arroyo. Moving. This way, sir, slowly. Automatic control. When it gets like caught in the laser beams of the the force field that's surrounding the spaceship, right? You can. Animators who worked on Fantasia and Snow White were the ones that did that, and I think they did some set design stuff as well. And they do a really good job of making it still very mysterious. It never, you never feel like you fully grasp what the monster looks like. They just do a lot of suggesting of the size and the power that the the monster has. So I like this film just because I think it just made me wonder so much. I think it made me consider, oh, wow, completely different people on a different planet that live underneath the ground and the vast world that they created. And this monster that's invisible is basically anything I conjure up in my mind. So it's little wonder to me that the that other filmmakers later it just opened up their eyes to possibilities. And I feel like Star Trek, which was influenced by this movie, have been just seeking to satisfy their imaginations along these lines ever since. I mean, 
It's a film that really didn't do well, maybe when it was brand new, but I think has affected generations of sci-fi. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't even get an idea of what the aliens looked like, even though it would make sense to have some sort of depiction of an alien race that was that intelligent. Uh, there should be some some sort of thing that represents them. But all you get is is um, Morbius's little intelligence booster machine. He just says that it's designed to uh, fit a head that's much bigger than ours. And that's like the only glimpse you get into what the alien race looked like. And the rest is just in your imagination. It's a very important film, I think, to see if you like sci-fi because not because it's the best sci-fi film ever made, although it is a really good one. You should see it just to enjoy it. But it also really brought the sci- the, the whole genre into fruition. But the 60s were a huge decade for sci-fi. And this was made just prior to that decade. Yeah, it just kind of opened the door for all of that. Um, Should we talk about our favorite scenes? So I have one. It's not it's not my favorite, but it was kind of one that like maybe wonder. I don't understand that quite. So I'm just going to kind of bring it up and see what your thoughts are about. it. So when the commander and Altera kiss for the first time, um, her friend, because she has all these little animal friends on the planet that are tame and love her. Her little tiger friend comes up and tries to attack her. And she is like, oh, why Why would he try to hurt me? And the commander says, you really don't know, do you? And she says, no, I don't. And I don't really know. <laughs> I'm not really sure. <laughs> like, is that? <laughs> I honestly don't know. And I think I said the same thing when I was out loud while I was watching it with my kids when she said, I really don't know. And I'm like, I don't know either. But... I- <laughs> Yes, the romantic plotline is a little bit thin in this, but it does play an important role. This poor girl who has never met another man besides her father is suddenly kind of in the in the thick of all of these women-deprived men who've been on a ship for months and months. Your father wasn't too happy at first about your meeting us, was he? Naturally not. You're from Earth. What's wrong with Earth? How lucky I am, though. All three of you are such very fine exceptions. Well, you are exceptions, aren't you? Oh, sure, sure. Well, that is, I am, anyway. Old, dependable Jerry. <laughs> it, it's, it's a little problematic, and but it does play... <laughs> <laughs> you feel, like, really concerned for her. At least I feel very concerned for her. And weirdly enough, though, her father doesn't seem all that concerned for her safety. Even when the overtly predatory lieutenant immediately with her father right there starts chatting her up in a very suggestive way right off the bat. And you think, even though I've seen this movie, I kind of forgot what happens, but you would think that, oh, her father's going to go after this guy or the monster will go after this guy. Mm -hmm. He doesn't. He goes after the guy that threatens his own power instead, which just shows you how selfish and narcissistic Morbius is. Right. Doesn't want to come to the defense of his his naive daughter, but wants to go to the defense of of his power, I guess. Right. 
My favorite scene was when Dr. Morbius, even though he is a crazy guy that is seriously mentally ill, um, he takes them through the alien world. I loved this part of the movie, even as a kid, because it just it made me want to go exploring there. I wanted to go there and explore and look around at the all the different uh, the houses, the buildings, everything. And even though it's a drawing, it just was super exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. They do a really good job with the special effects in that that part. I mean, maybe not by today's standards, but for sure they do a really good job for the time. Yeah, the end of the film is done really well. Even though you never see the monster actually chasing them, it does a great job heightening the tension and making your heart beat faster. Right. That was one of my favorite favorite scenes as well was the end. And I feel kind of silly because I think every mo- every scene that I've mentioned in this podcast so far has been like the climax. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's my favorite. Oh, really? <laughs> well, 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 too obvious. <laughs> so if you don't really love sci-fi, if sci-fi isn't normally your thing, it's still like every good sci-fi. It's not just about the futuristic setting. It's not about the aliens. It's not about the spaceships. It's not about the gadgets or anything like that. It is about the story and the story is still a great one. Yeah tale as old as time (laughs) so after this i think i know what you are going to recommend everyone watch lisa (laughs) yeah yeah i would say the little mermaid (laughs) it would get you um just kind of explain the the story of the tempest a little bit more and kind of you see common themes but i actually heard that the tv show lost is loosely based on the tempest as well so that's also something that you could watch um, if you have like an extra 700 hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. Making connections. Super important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. All the island films. Because we were raised on older films, the first thing I thought of after watching Forbidden Planet was the TV show, The Outer Limits, which every episode starts with saying, oh, we're taking control of your TV. Those were really fun and often very creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very similar in feel. Shorter. They're kind of like uh, the Twilight Zone, only very mu- much more space related. We have one more movie for the month of September, and that is a movie about teenage angst. But it's a classic, and you probably have seen bits and pieces of it without even realizing it. So we're really excited to share that with you next week. Stay tuned, and I hope you guys get a chance to watch Forbidden Planet. Even if you're not into sci-fi, it's a great one. Yeah, you don't want to miss this one. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.